We'll hear argument first today in case 06766, New York State Board of Elections versus Torres. Mr. Olson. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. For 10 years, New York relied on political party primaries to nominate general election candidates for Supreme Court justice. But that process discouraged qualified candidates and spawned unseemly, expensive, and potentially corrupting fundraising by judicial candidates. So the legislature substituted an indirect party primary system at which delegates are elected, who in turn select general election candidates at political party conventions. The Second Circuit concluded that the delegate convention statutes enabled political parties to exercise too much influence at the expense of insurgent party members or insurgent candidates and struck those statutes down as facially unconstitutional and reinstated the discredited primary process. The issue in this case is whether the delegate convention system is facially unconstitutional because it allows party leaders to defeat the aspirations of party insurgents. States have broad, as this Court has repeatedly held, broad constitutional latitude to prescribe the time, place, and manner of elections, particularly elections for state office. Well, just focus on, if you would, Mr. Olson, the election for the delegates. Uh, suppose it were shown, hypothetical case, um, that it's extremely difficult to get on that ballot. Uh, you need, let's say, know, 2,000 signatures in 30 days. Uh, would there be a constitutional issue raised by that situation? Well, in the first place, as you know, Justice Kennedy, that, it, that is not the case here. It takes 500 signatures. Case. If it were an impossible burden um, to get on the ballot, uh, I still don't think that First Amendment associational rights would be involved. What about Cusper, the Cusper case? I don't think the Cusper case goes that far, Justice Kennedy. I think that as the, the cases of this Court — I think we've made it very, very clear that if you're going to use a primary system, you can't have such burdensome registration requirements that the primary system uh, is, is not to all intents and purposes — I think — I all, think — All intents and purposes open to those who wish to participate. I, th I think that the, 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 the other factor that um, — uh, is involved here is that provided that there is reasonable access to the general election, which is another factor in this case, um, then the constitutional rights to associate are satisfied. So you think that in Cusper, uh, if uh, there, there was reasonable access to general election, you can uh, s structure and stifle the primary anyway? The state. Well, I think that. The, um, I'm mean, just looking at the principle here, and it may be that you'll say that there's no burden here, et cetera. But I just want to know if there's — isn't there a constitutional principle that we are entitled and we must look at the fairness of the primary system insofar as participation of the voters? I think that the, the case that maybe best answers that is the Monroe case, in which the State of Washington's practice — and it was a different practice of the State of Washington before this Court earlier this week. But at that point in time, the, the process was there was an open blanket prime primary, which was not not held unconstitutional at that point, where the major candidates, the, the one and two position of the major candidates the, of, of each of the political parties would get on the ballot. And then the Socialist Party was complaining because it took one percent of the votes at the primary process to get on the general election ballot. This Court held that that was, a, that was not a, a, an impossible burden um, and that the, the principle from that case and the other cases, the American political uh, — the American Party of Texas versus White and so forth, the Court's jurisprudence has held as long as there is reasonable access for a candidate or a political party to the general election process, then it does not have to be provided in that way is, in the is primary. It, is it right to regard the ele uh, election of delegates here as a primary election? Um, my understanding, of course, is that that simply elects — doesn't get you on the ballot. It elects delegates who then exercise some choice. Do you think our primary election cases are transferable to this situation? Well, I, th I think there's two answers to that. Your primary election cases talk in terms the, the ones that have been mentioned in the briefs here talk particularly in terms of protection under the Equal Protection Clause. This is — it's called a primary, but it's an election of delegates by party members 
that — and then when those delegates get together, they go to the convention. So I'm not sure that the nomenclature makes so much difference, is this is a process that the State has allowed the party to implement to choose its leadership. The, the Court has repeatedly held that there is no point in the process — The State has not allowed it. The State has required it, No. Yes, the state requires it, but it — Although if we, if we hold it in unconstitutional for the state to require it, I suppose it would also be unconstitutional for the state merely to allow it, wouldn't it? So that this manner of, uh, of selecting judges in any other state, if it has been voluntarily adopted by the party, would, would be unconstitutional. That's, that's the principle that the respondents in the yeah. Second Circuit advance. It would strike down — the conventions, because conventions are by definition selections of individuals to represent the broader constituency at a well, subsequent well, just to make it clear, is it your position that with reference to this uh, election for delegates, uh, the state can make it as burdensome as it chooses on those who wish to uh, put themselves forward on the ballot as a proposed delegate? I think, Justice Kennedy, as long as the the system in the state provides a reasonable access to candidates and political parties to the election process that there is not a First Amendment right with respect to the primary process or the preliminary process, which in this case includes both this so-called delegate selection. What, if, what, what if it were the parties that objected to this and not some individual who, who said, I'm not being given enough voice in the party? What if the party said, we don't want to select our candidates this way. Is it, is it clear that the state could impose it upon them? It's clear that the state um, has the right, and, it, and this Court has said so in the um, um, American Party of Texas versus White, that the state can require either a primary election or a convention. The Court specifically addressed that. In fact, what the Court say, it is too plain for argument that a state may insist that intra-party competition be settled by primary or convention. That's the holding of that. A convention, conventions can come in all sizes and shapes. The argument here is that this system shuts out rank-and-file party members and gives the total control to the party leaders, and that the preliminary, whether you call it a primary uh, or a selection of delegates, that it's really a sham because nobody's going to run for that except a party faithful, someone picked by the party boss. So the argument on the other side is that this system, as complicated as it is, reduces to the party leaders choose the candidates. Well, what this Court has said in the California Republican Party versus Jones case, cite quoting the U case, EU case, that the Court had decided before, is that the, the political party has the right to select its leadership, to select its nominating process, to select its candidates, and to exclude members. So, Justice Ginsburg, the party has the right, even arbitrarily, as long as the 14th Amendment is not violated in an election context, to exclude members of its party. Well, the state can restrict that right if it wants to. The state can require the party to select its candidates by by primary, if it by wishes. Primary or or by convention. Or, or by convention. But, but but if the state wants to do it by smoke, if if the party wants to do it by smoke-filled room, the state can say, if it wishes to say, you can't do it by smoke-filled it, room. It can, Justice Scalia. But the state must respect the rights of the political parties in determining who their leaders and candidates will well, be. That, but that's not the issue here. The state and the party are in agreement. The yes. state is not yes. trying to coerce the party into doing something that it doesn't want to do. Yes, I totally agree with you, but I'm answering hypothetical questions with respect to something else. What this Court has said, that th this Court vigorously protects the special place the First Amendment reserves for the protection by which a party, political party, selects a standard bearer. Selecting a candidate is selecting the person that will communicate the party's interests. So the party is, you're identifying the party with the party leader, because the argument comes down to this is not the rank and file that's making this election. This is the party leader. And the party might like that or the leadership might like that, but the rank and file might not. And the argument is that they have rights of association, too. 
Well, they have rights of association, but they have — they're associated in a political party, which is elected leadership, which makes decisions, Justice Ginsburg. Individu- they do not have a right to belong to the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, the rank and file, so forth. The definition of insurgent, which is at the other side of the table here, are people that are rebelling against the duly elected leadership of the political party. But if there is a state-mandated primary, I thought it's basic law that the state may not place unduly restrictive uh, barriers to to participation in that primary. I think that's a given, it seems to me. Now, tell me if if I'm wrong. If I may be wrong. And then we can argue about whether the burden is too great here, which it it may not be. Let me say, Justice Kennedy, that I may be wrong in terms of what this Court's decisions stand for with respect to ultimately allowing, as far as associational rights are concerned, individuals and parties access to the total electorate. But even if your premise is correct, that there must be open access in a reasonable way to either the — to both the primary and the general election, then this process is reasonable. It's not unreasonably difficult for, the, for a person to participate. Let, let me say — let me enumerate the ways. An individual rank-and-file member can campaign and vote for delegates. An individual might become a delegate himself by — or herself by getting 500 names on a signature, and that's far below what this Court — has indicated before was was a, a acceptable level of requirement of access to the ballot. An individual can attempt to form delegate slates and can attempt to per, per, persuade the delegates. Can the individual can form or switch parties? In this case, the respondent Lopez Torres actually in the 2003 election became a candidate at the general election for Supreme Court Justice of the Working Families Party, and she did that without giving up her registration and membership in the Democratic Party. She was in that election, and she lost. Finally, and this is even if she hadn't been able to secure the nomination of that political party, she could run in the general election. There's access to her. It takes 3,500 to 4,000 signatures to run as an independent body in the general election. So there is way after way after way for individuals in New York to participate in the election process. So in answer to your question, Justice Kennedy, to the extent that um, your statement of the principle with respect to access to both the primary and the general election is, is the law of this Court, then that access exists here. But I come back to the point that political parties have uh, the greatest possible attitude, yes, Justice Scalia, that, that the Court has upheld certain restrictions with respect to how the nominee of the party gets selected, but the Court has also said that when the party is in that process, its powers and rights and First Amendment freedoms to elect the standard bearer, to select the standard bearer, are at their apogee because the person selected as a candidate whether that person might be the most favorable person to the rank and file, the duly elected leadership of the political party might decide, well, that person really isn't qualified to be a Supreme have Court we, have, we Im- Even- have we imposed any such restrictions uh, on our own as opposed to merely upholding restrictions that were imposed by the state? That is to say, have we held that the Constitution itself imposes certain restrictions? Except in the context of analyzing what state requirements have been? Yeah, I I, I want a case where the state did not impose the restriction, and it was up to us to decide whether the state could do that or not. But rather, the state said the party can do whatever it wants, and we have disallowed what the party itself chose under no compulsion from the state. Aside the basis of some constitutional principle, apart from the Equal Protection Clause yeah. or the, 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 only the cases, Amendment. The only cases that I would submit that I'm aware of that would answer that would be Equal Protection Clause cases. Because the, the, these, the political party is a group of people that decide to form together because of common beliefs. In the, that is the maximum freedom that we allow for associations. Of all the business about smoke-filled rooms and things like that, people have the right to decide, make decisions. Do you think a political party could say you can't vote in our primary unless you've been a member of our party for four years? Yes, Justice Kennedy. I, I don't uh, — in an association, what — It would be a state-mandated 
this would be a state-mandated party for uh, a primary uh, for uh, uh, election well, for party general might, I, party would, if, if it's a, there's two questions there. If the party wants to have a four-year requirement be, before you can be a part of that association, I can't understand what the First Amendment associational right would be. What about if the, the state imposed that, the party could say, well, that's unreasonable. We want to open up. In fact, the Court decided this by saying that um, the, the party who wanted to could allow independents to vote. If I might, Mr. Chief Justice, may I reserve? Isn't Justice Kennedy asking if the Cusper case was correctly decided? Well, I'm not — I think I tried to answer that the best I could by saying that I think the import of the cases, um, without getting into the specifics of that, are, are that if you have a reasonable access by individuals or political parties to the electoral process, that satisfies the Constitution. Thank you, Mr. Olson. Mr. Rossman. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I'd like to begin by responding to Justice Kennedy's question regarding the election of delegates and fairness for voters. There are two responses. In this case that I have, this case there uh, was conceded below that the requirement for delegates of getting only 500 signatures was no barrier at all. Uh, and secondly, I would say that in considering that question, Justice Kennedy, the important thing is to consider what is the intended role that the state gives to the participants in this process. And what the role here is that individual voters have the opportunity to vote for local delegates who are to represent their interests at the convention. As Cousins instructs, once they have the opportunity to pull a lever for the delegate that shares their values and their preferences, their right of suffrage is satisfied. What they do not have, what respondents and what the lower courts would like to have exist, but doesn't exist and isn't required under the Constitution, is the opportunity for rank-and-file voters to vote directly for the candidates at the nomination stage. And that's the difference between a delegate-based convention and a primary. If we agree, and I think the Court would agree, that there is no right to a primary, that's something, in fact, that's conceded in this case, there is no constitutional right to a primary, then there is no state requirement that there be a direct opportunity for association between voter and candidate at the nomination phase, that it is perfectly appropriate and constitutional for that association to be between voter and delegate, and the voters then rely on their locally elected delegates to advance their interest in in the convention process. That's the difference between a convention and a primary. We think it's a critical one here. So the case is — In practice, how many people, other than the slates selected by the party leaders, run in New York for this delegate position? In in New York City, the evidence below was that approximately 12 to 13 percent of delegate slates are contested. But we suggest — that the availability of a contest is the key. It's not the frequency of the contest, because there's also evidence in the record that for open primaries for civil court, which is the closest parallel, that those are only contested 28 percent of the time. So the fact that an election is not contested, that there may be voter apathy out there, that there may be party unity that causes people to rally behind the parties and their leadership, is not a constitutional problem. So the theory of this, I take it, is that just as you said, uh, voters elect uh, convention delegates, and those convention delegates choose the official nominee, say, of the Democratic Party. So that nominee goes on to the final ballot. Correct. Well, what, what then of the fact that, that the uh, convention delegates, when they meet, won't let people who would like the position of the judge appear before them? Well, that is not the general case in the state of New York, but — even if it is. The important thing is not that individual candidates appear to politic before the delegates. It's that delegates have the freedom under the statute to vote for whatever candidate they like. There's evidence that there's legislative intent that, in fact, candidates not appear at the convention because it would be unseemly for them to do so. Then how, is, how are the delegates to find out 
the qualifications. In other words, if that's the intent of this statute, then you have a statute that's designed on the one hand to have convention delegates who will choose, and on the other hand, to prevent the convention delegates from finding out the qualifications of the different applicants, in which case it would seem to be a statute that would give the actual power of selection to the leader or the chairman, I forget the title, of the Democratic Party. And I don't know uh, about the constitutionality of that or not. In other words, go ahead. Well, let me respond to the most difficult party question first, which is the constitutionality of the party leader selecting a candidate we think is not troublesome at all. In fact, there are many uh, instances in New York and in other states where the political leaders, through their structure, do pick the candidates. For example, in the case of vacancy elections, which this Court upheld as constitutional in the Rodriguez case. But the, uh, the question I think that, y- that you're asking is, is there some denial of voter or delegate education, and does that pose a constitutional problem? Well, you have here a bare statutory framework, and the statutory framework does not in any way, shape, or form preclude the ability of delegates to become educated about the candidates. Within that bare statutory framework, the parties themselves, through what we contend is core associational activity protected by the First Amendment, participate in their their own way of choosing in educating delegates and in putting forth the candidacies of judicial, potential judicial nominees. I suppose that the the state can make the judgment that it's more likely that the delegates would be informed about the qualifications of candidates for judgeship than the voters. Well, in fact, we think that is the very judgment that the state has made here. And when, as Mr. Olson said, when it went from a primary to a convention process, the idea behind it in part was that the delegates could be more educated and would be expected to be more educated than rank-and-file voters would be about judges. And the evidence in this case is that rank-and-file voters are not educated uh, hardly at all about the judge candidates that they select. So we think this is clearly a legislative, sensible policy choice to put the selection process in the hands of those who have the motivation and the opportunity to become more educated about those that they're selecting. Now, one thing that needs to be uh, recalled in this process is, of course, it is not merely a state-run election. As, it, as the Court observed in Jones, it is a party affair, too. So there are core First Amendment rights of the parties themselves that attach. And the question, I think, in response to Justice Ginsburg's question about whether there's confusion between the party leaders and the parties, uh, it is our reading of the U, Tashjian, and Jones cases uh, that the Court has recognized that parties have a structure and have the core constitutional right to create their own structure, and their leadership can make choices for the party. So they can choose to endorse candidates. For example, they can choose to associate or not associate uh, with, with particular individuals. And that's a choice that's made here by duly elected leaders of the parties. And if there's a problem with that, the remedy for that problem is in the political arena. The remedy is for the rank-and-file voters to vote their party leaders out when they come up for election, if they adopt a process that they don't like or they think squelches the uh, input of the rank-and-file members. So the reason that — pardon me — the reason why that's not happening here, we believe, could be uh, attributable to one of two things. It could be attributable to apathy, which the Constitution does not have a prerogative to stamp out, or it could be attributable to party unity in the fact that leaders are sensitive to who would be best to advance the interests of their rank-and-file members. So we don't think that there's a constitutional problem with that. Um, but if the, if the autonomy of the party and, let's say, the leader is, is the justification for this, the party, how autonomous can a party be when it's told, even if you want to be more democratic about how you choose your candidates, you can't because New York is forcing this system on you? Well, the only system that New York is forcing is a bare framework for representative democracy. It's a convention. It's no well, different than The parties are not protesting in this case, are they? Absolutely I mean, not. If, if and when that situation arises, I suppose we can, uh, we, we can decide it. But it's, it's not here. The parties 
are totally happy with this and would do it on their own. We absolutely agree. And the parties intervened from the outset of this case, both major parties, because they share the view that the system is better than a primary would be, and they believe that their rights are I think it's probably likely that the parties got this system adopted by the New York legislature. Well, however the legislative process uh, has unfolded, in 1921, multiple times since, uh, and to the present, when the legislature filed an amicus brief with the Second Circuit, the legislature has clearly been in support of this, and we think it's within a, it's a core state power. It's a sensible legislative choice that they've made. It's within the contours of American Party of Texas versus White, which recognized, as Justice Scalia observed uh, moments ago, that the part that the state can choose to have primaries or conventions, where the state has chosen to have conventions. Party rights attached to that. Uh, and the one thing that the lower court did that we urge uh, the court to uh, consider to be quite inappropriate was to apply strict scrutiny to what is routine core party associational activity of leaders de- developing candidacies, recommending candidates, endorsing candidates, and, and fielding delegates who they think are loyal to the interests of the party. That doesn't deserve strict scrutiny. At worst, we think there's no burden here to the rank-and-file voters to force them to participate in the party's own convention. But even if there were some burden, at worst, we think that there are countervailing rights here. And where there are countervailing rights, the Court should defer to the legislative expertise here. And the expertise, uh, thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Mr. Ross. Uh, Mr. Schwartz. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Um, on a uh, robust record, the District Court, confirmed in great detail by the Second Circuit, found that there were severe burdens placed upon um, insurgents and placed upon party members who wished to band together to support a candidate. They what, found what about the burden on a single delegate wanting to be on the ballot? I, 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 I I think that requires 500 votes, and there was no specific finding that that was a burden, or am I incorrect? There was no specific finding that was a burden. You're correct. I have two additional points to make. First, if you look at John Dunn's amicus brief, John Dunn was a Republican leader in the state of New York. He was chairman of the Judiciary Committee for many years in the state Senate. And he, on page 19 of his brief, describes how it was impossible even for him to get admitted as a delegate, and it wasn't worthwhile to try and be a lone um, gadfly. Um, secondly, the, the courts analyzed the burden in terms of the difficulty of assembling and running a slate of delegates, a slate that cut across the, uh, the various assembly districts. And the court has found — Assuming that the plaintiffs have associational rights at stake here, isn't this a case where there's a conflict between two uh, associational — two sets of rights of association? You have the the party hierarchy who wants to, in your own words, fence out the insurgents. That's a right not to associate. And then you have the insurgents who want to be fenced in. Well, the — Isn't that different from the cases that you rely on? I I think not, Your Honor, because I think if you think about the question of do the party leaders have the right to stifle the voices of ordinary members, one should conclude no. And it's very different from your decision in Jones. But that's charged language. They have the right to stifle the insurgents. Do they not — does not the right of association include the right not to uh, associate? I, I think, Your Honor, the right of association does not include the right to use an election system imposed by the state, which makes it impossible. That's where the burden comes from. It's because the state has imposed this system on every party. So I do not think there is a countervailing um, right on the other side. What are your your best cases for that proposition? um, I would say, first place, I'd have to start out by saying there's not a case on all fours like this. Um, The then I would say that's quite clear why that would be, because there's no system like this in the United States and never has been. Um, I guess I would say after that point that the cases, first there are principles in your cases, 
there's a principle being worried about the effect of state laws serving to entrench power. That, that's a theme that runs through all your cases. Secondly, there is in your cases the um, many, many cases that hold what's important is to make a realistic assessment of how a statute actually works. Now, having said those two points by way of, three points by way of preliminary, first, there's nothing on all fours, and really you wouldn't expect it. Then what are cases that I think are, that bite on, in our favor? Well, there are principles in the cases. I would start with Storer, and Storer says in assessing severe burden, what you want to look at is the, um, is the realistic effect of whether people have gotten on the ballot. And Stora says, if you find that happens rarely, while it's not conclusive, it's, it's, the, it's indicative that there is a severe burden. Is that a, a general election case? That's a general election case, isn't it? Uh, well, it, but the principles of whether the election, general election cases and the primary cases should apply, it seems to me, are the same principles. The root principles that apply are the same ones. Well, let me but ask even you about that. Please, please. Let's suppose the state doesn't think that direct voter election of judges is a good idea, that it thinks there ought to be some insulation to avoid the problems of judges campaigning and and raising money and all that. Yet at the same time, they want some participation by the voters in the process. Is there any way they can achieve that objective, to have the nominees actually chosen not by the voters but by a convention and yet have some role by the voters? Absolutely is, Your Honor. We do not claim here that any convention is inappropriate. No, no, I'm just, is there a way to have a convention with some role by the voters or the party members? Yes, Your Honor, as long as that convention does not set up severe barriers to people competing. Uh, And I I would say even if you look at the Board of Elections' own But doesn't that seem kind of odd that if a state can have no role for voters, it can have a pure convention, um, that they're penalized if they have some role for voters? I, I wouldn't put it as being penalized, Your Honor. I think it is the — well, Being state, found unconstitutional is a pretty severe penalty. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it, it's what we seek, and we think the courts below appropriately granted, Your Honor. The, the, um, but it's, it's not penalizing the states for doing something. It's saying if you do this and if you severely burden, as after an extensive fact-finding hearing, the courts held — the statutes do, uh, then you have to show that there's a compelling justification. But, Mr. Schwartz, the problem that I have in the analogy that you're drawing on the application of your principle based on the general election cases is this. There is conceitedly, and you, you mentioned this earlier, there is conceitedly uh, <clears throat> no unreasonable barrier to somebody who wants to become a delegate. You've got to get 500 signatures, but that can be done. The, the, the burden that I understand that, that, that your clients are complaining about uh, is the, in effect, the, the burden of influencing the ultimate decision-maker to decide to nominate that person. And that burden uh, is, is focused on two points. Number one, the entrenched power of political bosses. And number two, the difficulty, well, I guess three points, the difficulty of fielding for a dissident to field a whole slate of candidates who, in effect, once elected, would, mm-hmm. would make the nomination desired, or three, uh, the, the capacity of the intending or the aspiring candidate to influence the delegates directly once they're selected, because the time is short. And those aren't, those aren't it seems to me, uh, complaints about access to the electoral process, their complaints uh, about the capacity to influence those who are elected, who make the ultimate decision. And that's the difficulty I have in the analogy that you're drawing or the parallel that you're making between the direct election cases and your claim here. Could you comment on that? Yeah. Um, the, the, I, I guess the — I want to make two comments. First, it seems to me the principles that are in your — your direct election cases, and also primary cases like Cusper and the Panish against Lubin or Lubin against Panish, where the the court took the 
language in your Williams case about you ought to be worried if there are multiple parties competing, clamoring for a place on the ballot, and said, well, that should also apply, this Court said that should also apply in a primary context where there are multiple people seeking to, um, to attain a nomination. Now, should it matter because here the primary or the election, it's really an election, but the state happens to call it a primary, should, should it matter that that is um, in the preliminary stage, in the nomination stage? I, I would suggest it should not. Now, I think your, your But it's still the case that at the end of the day, the nub of your claim is that the intending judicial candidate cannot effectively politic, does not have a reasonable chance of, of getting selected. And, and I don't see that as, as, a, as, as a direct ballot access claim. Let me put the question in another way. Um, your, your, your friend on, on the other side, Mr. Rossman, uh, in response to a question, said that if the selection of the judicial candidate for the party were made directly by the, the political bosses, whatever their title are, the ones who are supposedly in control here, he would not see any constitutional objection to that. What if New York had a system uh, that provided precisely for that? Uh, the political bosses, as I understand it, get elected every two years, and the state law would provide uh, that those party bosses, whatever their title is, uh, would in fact select the candidate. Would that be unconstitutional? I, I think I would like to draw a distinction between the law as I think you described it and a different law that Justice Scalia described. I think the law that Justice Scalia described would be constitutional if what the state did is to say, you, the party, decide on what to do. I think the state is then not putting a, a thumb on the scale. The state is not um, interfering with, with, the, with the disputes within the party. However, on the statute that I think you described, Justice Souter, where the state says, um, we decree that for every party the leader shall make the decision. I think that would be unconstitutional because the state has no business intervening in the, the party isn't objecting. Well, Your Honor, I, th I think that the party the party likes it. I'm uh, sure the party and, and likes it. The, the claim here: these people are not, as I understand it, bringing a, a case on behalf of the rights of the party. They're bringing a case based on a premise of of a principle of participation, which is theirs. Uh, and, and that's why uh, it seems to me that the, that the hypo that I pose is not significantly different, provided the party is not objecting, in which we have a different case. But it, it seems to me that my hypo is not significantly different from the one that gave rise to the question that Mr. Rossman answered. Well, the, the, um, f f first, the, the, um, on the consent of the party leaders, which is really what we have here, uh, of course they are they like the system because the state system entrenches them and and this court well the federal system uh, in in practice entrenches United States senators uh, i I'm, I'm I'm not sure that in terms of political participation on the part of an intending or an aspiring judge that the system that that I suggested in the hypo in which the party bosses select the nominee is, for constitutional purposes, significantly different from the federal system for, for picking district judges. No, because the, the federal system provides that there shall not be elections. Here, elections sure. — and, and in my hypo, there, there are the, the only election is the election for the party boss. Well, I, I would still suggest, Your Honor, that as we see the case, that would be unconstitutional. But our case is much stronger than that, because in any event, there is here an election — for delegates. Okay, and, but isn't, isn't your argument still that you are, because there is a limitation on the participation of the intending judicial candidate, there is ultimately a constitutional problem? So let me pose a, a different question to you, and this one is not hypothetical. The nub of your case is that the political bosses, in effect, are controlling the process because they tell the delegates uh, who, who to vote for. Uh, does your does, — does the intending judicial nominee uh, whom you represent have any difficulty in getting to the political bosses and saying, I want you to consider me? 
Uh, yes, they would not listen to her, and they said, we won't listen to you in this particular case. We won't listen to you because you declined to hire an unqualified person as Sure. They, they, for political reasons, they're saying, we don't like you. Uh, there, are, there are a lot of people who go to United States senators, and the United States senators, senators say, scram. We, we, don't, we don't like you. Your, your politics aren't, aren't good enough for us. And, and so I'm, I'm not saying that, uh, that you know, on my hypo, the, the person who lobbies the bosses directly uh, is, 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 is claiming a right to success. I think they're claiming a right to, to have a chance to influence the process. And why don't they have the chance by going to the boss? Um, well, Your Honor, let me try two things. First, first, that never has worked. I mean, and it, it, it has to be at least using the store analysis of what actually happens. The fact that never in the history of New York, not in the Republican Party, not in the Democratic Party, not in New York City, not in upstate, never has someone who was opposed by the party boss been able to become a judge. And I don't know of any enemy of the United States. The person wouldn't be opposed (laughs) if if he approached the boss and the boss said, Yeah. yeah, boy, I really like you. That person would automatically not be a, uh, a rebel. He'd, he'd be part of the establishment. But the, the um, you know, th- this isn't an issue that divides by ideology. It, it's really the question here is if you have a statute uh, that makes it difficult for the voters to participate, to, to have a voice, th- that's really the question. And if, if — I could use something that um, the Board of Elections brief conceded um, in in both their reply and their opening brief. They said a person — they said that party members who wanted to attempt to assemble a slate to try to influence the decision at the convention would be well served — that's their exact words — to assemble and run a slate. But the district court and the circuit court found that it was impossible, severely burdensome, actually impossible, for that burden to be met. May I ask you this question, Mr. Schwartz? Supposing that the statute did not contain the delegate selection process and instead said, delegates shall be selected by the county chairman in each county by the organization, would it then be unconstitutional? If it said delegates will be selected I, by, you know, by party officials. I'm not sure about that. I'm not — I think that — I'm not sure. See, I, I think it's different it, it, than it, it, Justice Souter's hypothetical. No, I, I'm just saying just eliminate this whole falderal about picking delegates and say the county chairman shall pick the delegates, yeah. period. Yeah. I, I don't see why that would be unconstitutional. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I have a position on that one way or the other. I, what I do say, though, is this court, in your uh, Minnesota Republican Party against white decision, said it makes a different. You know, the question of whether judges should be elected or appointed is a controversial question. Um, but they, you know, this court, in in that decision, said that um, if you're going to have an election, and here we have elections for delegates. If you're going to have an election, you shouldn't structure that election in a way that makes it, in, in that case, um, extremely difficult or impossible Mr. or Schwartz, forbidden. Mr. you're talking about the election of the, of the judge or the election of the delegate. I think you're mixing two oranges and apples there. Well, the, the, I do believe that the election of the delegates raises the constitutional questions about has the state put its thumb on the scale, has the state done something that severely burdens If the evidence the shows the thumb on the scale is just as strong as if the party chairman picked the delegates, and therefore it seems to me it presents the question whether it would be unconstitutional to enact a statute that allows the party chairman to pick the delegates. Um, I'm not sure, Your Honor. Well, if you're not I, sure, I, it's I, difficult. I, 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 if I can interrupt Justice Barber for just one minute. Uh, but in, in the Minnesota case, the thumb on the scale was to deprive uh, the uh, constituents of a First Amendment right. In Smith versus All Right, it was a right not to be discriminated against race. Here, what we're asking is, what is the substantive right? Well, I, I think the here it is the right 
not to be burdened, severely burdened, in an election. And that's just runs through all your cases. No, but what you are calling, and correct me if I'm wrong, maybe I misunderstand this, I think what you are calling the severe burden is the difficulty of assembling a whole slate that can control the meeting or have a majority in the ultimate meeting of that delegates, of those delegates, and therefore actually select the candidate who wants to put the slate together. No, we, we, and we and it's, it's control over result rather than the capacity of any individual to get elected a delegate, which I think you were objecting to. Am I wrong? We have never said that there's a right to win. We have only said there's a right to meaningfully participate. Yeah, but when you say meaningfully participate, you talk about putting, and, and candidly talk, about putting a slate of delegates together. If I put a slate of delegates together, it's because once those delegates are selected, they're going to support me. And that's why it's, uh, I, I think your real argument is not that somebody has difficult, difficulty becoming a, a candidate for a delegate or even getting elected one. The difficulty that you're claiming is that it's, it, it is hard for the intending judicial candidate to assemble a large enough group of people to give that candidate success once the delegates are elected. It's, it's, a, it's a success argument that you're making, not an access argument. No, it's a, it's a compete argument, not an access argument. And I do think the Constitution should be read and to say that if the state passes laws that make it very hard for voters to band together or for insurgent candidates to compete, then and it's a severe burden. They have to justify it. And, by the way, they haven't sought in their papers to justify it. Could a state decide it doesn't want candidates to have any part in this delegate selection process? It thinks it's unseemly to have would-be judges engage in that kind of activity. So it structures a system that says we're going to choose delegates for a convention, but we don't want the, those delegates to be the delegates of any particular candidate. We want to insulate this process from would-be candidate influence. Would that be unconstitutional? Well, the, 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 the problem is that in the real world, the statutes work to entrench the power of the party leaders and to prevent voters from, to use the Board of Elections uh, reply brief, I think, on page um, 5, to use, or 17, use the, um, uh, the voters are not able to band together to try and influence the results at but the of convention. Of course not. Well, you're, you're really arguing against the whole purpose of this scheme, which is not to have judges popularly elected. And you're saying, no, we want them popularly elected. The, the purpose of the scheme is to, is to have the people elect delegates and have delegates use their good judgment as to who, as to who the, the best judge would be. But you say, no, we want the people to have an input. I mean, it's contrary to the whole purpose of the scheme. Of course it works the way you say it does. It is designed to work that way. It's a basic judgment not to have judges popularly elected. And your objection amounts to saying, no, judges ought to be popularly elected. No, we, we, we have no problem with the convention, but we don't think that the, either the insurgent candidate or the uh, band of voters who wish to support that person should be, by the state, fenced out, severely burdened from attempting to... But it, it's all right, I take it, if they don't prevail. For example, you, uh, yes. the other side says that your argument is, is implicated whenever the convention leads to a different nominee than the primary. No, that's, that's You don't think there's anything wrong with the convention deciding that the nominee is going to be someone other than the person who would prevail in the primary election? There is nothing wrong with that, Your Honor. So it's all right to fence them out to that extent? If, if, you want, if we want to call that fencing, I, I don't call that fencing. That, that's the, if the convention is one that is put together without the state um, burdening the ability for people to get involved? And I take it in evaluating the burden, we should look at how difficult it is for someone to be elected a delegate. I think you should also look at the — since the party leaders run slates, 
and they have no difficulty in running slates because for various reasons that the courts found. Um, I think you should look at the question of slates as well as individual delegates. And in considering individual delegates, I, I do think that Mr. Dunn's amicus brief, which describes on his page 19, indicates that, you know, it's, it's a little unrealistic to think that anybody other than — Well, is that because Mr. Dunn was not supported by the party uh, members at the convention? Whatever no, he, he, wasn't, he, wasn't, he wasn't trying to be a judge, Your Honor. He, he, he speaks about his desire to be a delegate and his being told that you're not sufficiently reliable, we're not going to let you be a delegate. What did he have to do to become on the ballot for delegate? If he wanted to be a single person running just as appearing as a gadfly. 500 signatures. He needs right? the 500 signatures. If we don't think that's a sufficient burden, do you lose? I think we have a difficult case if you don't think that's a sufficient burden. If you think. But the state, the, the trial court didn't find that that was a burden. No, I, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm agreeing with the Chief Justice that I think that if you thought that just running for one delegate slot was sufficient to solve the problem of a state statute that was designed their words, um, their admission, to entrench the power party leaders, I think that gives us a, a problem. Why? I mean, I don't see how you avoid answering Justice Stevens' hypothetical. So the reason I think you have to answer it is because the New York system is the system he described in the hypothetical with a safety valve. The, the safety valve being? The safety valve being that the party leaders cannot just choose anybody. I mean, if it looks they're going to choose something really nutty, then uh, there will be opposition to these delegates and something will happen. Well, so I'm, they have leeway, uh, but you can't go too far. The, the record, Your Honor, when this is an extensive record, shows that the party leaders can choose and do choose people who are, to use your word, um, who are you don't like that's why I say you have to answer it. If you feel that that's so terrible, then you say, no, the Constitution forbids that, though you'd have to explain, wouldn't you, why with all its faults that is not better uh, in the judgment of New York than a system where people raise $4 million from the lawyers uh, in order to run for office. Um, they, you know, we, we, we have not said that there needs to be a primary. We, um, we haven't said that. Um, and sometimes our opponents leave the impression that we have said that. We haven't said that. Um, the, you know, there are — get rid of the leaders. That's the, that's the remedy, that, the temporary remedy that you sought, or you, because at the bottom line, the Court's order was, until New York reacts to this decision, the candidates will be chosen by primary. Yeah, the, the, but the judge, Your Honor, he, the judge did two things in imposing that remedy, three or four things, actually. He said, first, um, I'm not going to micromanage. I think the statutes are unconstitutional. I'm not going to get into all the details of fixing it because the legislature should do that and a federal court shouldn't do that. Second, he relied on the fact that the fallback position in the state statutes is there is a primary if there's no other system in place. But third and most important, he stayed his decision to give the legislature time to uh, address the question, and they were well on their way to addressing it when this Court um, gave us the opportunity to be that, here. Do you agree that it's not realistic that one way they would address it is by having an entirely appointed system? No, they, they are entitled to do that. No, they're entitled to it. As a, as well, a practical the, the, matter, is that a realistic um, the, If you look at the amicus briefs filed in our favor, um, the State Bar, the City Bar, the Fund for the Modern Courts, and um, the City of New York all file a brief in which they say, we think the right solution is to have a appointive system. And they're working to try and have that happen. Uh, and the Governor has put forward a bill for an appointive system. Um, but they say — Well, I'm sure he has. I mean, that's in his interest. Um, you know, no, no not — I thought I read a representation somewhere in the briefs that uh, it's unrealistic to expect that New York would move to an entirely appointed system, so that the options that you're — if you're successful, the options will either be direct election of judges or a pure convention with no role for the voters at all. No, it could be a, a role for the voters that does not burden them in the way this statute burden, burdens them. And, and the, the — um, uh, 
that, that, that brief by the State Bar and the, and the Bar of the Association of the City of New York and the other groups, who are, are strongly in favor of an appointive system, say to this Court, this is the worst of all worlds. And it, this system, as the, also the amicus brief from the former judges who were responsible for appellate judges responsible for administering the New York State system, says that this system has undermined judicial independence and undermined confidence in the courts. And that is, you know, that is clearly correct. It was also one view, I think it was, in the Farrakh report that said the worst thing in the world would be to return us to the primary system this system was intended to replace. Yeah, the, the, actually, the, the Farrakh report, uh, which found that the party leaders all over the state forever have always made the picks, they, they, they voiced a favoring um, amending the, the law. They, they, they think the law needs to be amended. And Chief Judge Kay, in her remarks after the decisions came down and after the FIRC Commission report came out, said the problems that have been revealed in this case are pervasive, both systemically and geographically. The FIRC Commission's view is that unless there's public financing, in which case they'd favor some more involvement by the voters, is simply amend the portions of the law that make it so burdensome on competitors, on voters. Um, we, we're, we're neutral. We, we just say this law is unconstitutional. And how it should be amended is up to the legislature. But that it should be amended um, is there's a powerful case. And, you know, I don't know where I am on the time here, but I, I commend to you the various amicus briefs that have come in they're on they're our side. They're all policy arguments about why this is a terrible statute. They're not necessarily uh, constitutional arguments. No, they, they also speak, speak about the Constitution. And, indeed, it's not very often that you find on a constitutional issue both the Washington Legal Foundation and the ACLU coming in, as they have come in, to assert that this is an unconstitutional statute. Well, it's not often you have both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party <laughs> supporting it either. Yeah, but, but then I, I think you should, you should look at the, um, what, what you said in, not you, but your predecessor said in you, about we've never held that a political party's consent will cure a statute that otherwise is violative. And there are other quotes in... Justice Scalia's Tastian opinion and in, in several other cases to that effect. Thank you, Mr. Thank Schwartz. You. Uh, Mr. Olson, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. The Second Circuit reinstalled what the New York legislature found to be a bad system, that it discouraged qualified candidates and it in, encouraged um, this unfortunate, unseemly race for money. Um, the respondents just said that that is not what they were interested in doing. But their prayer for their relief on page 35 of their complaint calls for a direct primary election for the Supreme Court. With respect to the Cusper case, Justice Kennedy, I gave that a little bit more thought. That, that case focused on the fact that the statute was inhibiting the rights of an individual who wanted to participate in a way that the party wanted that individual to participate. That long period of time prevented both the individual and the association from associating together, which is what with they the wanted state, to With do. the state statute. Yes. But, and, and to the extent that it was, it was, it, part of that is answered by your Klingman case, which just came relatively recently, where the party wanted independence to vote in the primary, and the Supreme Court, this court said that the, the state had to let that happen. With respect to time periods between when you had to identify yourself as a party member, this court held that in the Rosario case that a certain length of time is appropriate under the system. With respect to Mr. Dunn, we've heard about him. He, he may have had a desire to be a delegate, but he never tried to get the 500 signatures. It says that right on his, on page 19 of his brief, the, um, the brief that my, my colleague was quoting. With respect to the questions that I think that both Justice Stevens and Justice Souter were asking, could the state lodge the candidate selection or the delegate selection process in the party leaders, I can't conceive of how that would be unconstitutional. If the parties wanted to select the delegates or select the candidates to be their standard bearer, 
That seems to me to be perfectly within the right of an association to do, and it would be perfectly appropriate, provided that there was an access for independence and on. You're, you're not saying the state could compel that. No, you're no. Saying the state could could permit. I think those hypothetical questions are: Could the state vest that authority? Um, finally, I think it's important to say. Oh, one more preliminary point. It is competitive in New York. It may not be perfectly competitive, as is the case of 90 percent of the congressional districts in this country, which are said not to be competitive. But in New York, six sitting judges testified in, 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 in the lower court that they successfully lobbied delegates to, to, you know, to be candidates. So that happens. Between 1900 and 2002, this is Petition Appendix 130, nearly one-fourth of the general elections in New York were competitive. Um, Lopez Torres, the respondent, received 25 votes at the 2002 Judicial Selection Convention. And many of the districts in New York are not dominated by a single party. The final point is, it's important to emphasize, this is a, um, a, a challenge on its face to the statute that simply creates a delegate election, and then it creates a convention. Neither of those provisions can possibly be constitutional. And so what the respondents are complaining about is what party bosses do. But on page 38 of their brief, they state categorically that the constitutional offense is not the fact that party leaders act as one would expect in choosing nominees. In other words, they act, party leaders act like party leaders and exercise their influence. They're not saying that that's unconstitutional. What they're saying is that a statute that allows party leaders to be party leaders, to be constitutional, to act in ways which are not only permissible under the Constitution, as they acknowledge, but constitutionally protected is somehow constitutional. That simply is not consistent with any of this Court's jurisprudence, which says that political parties must have the maximum opportunity to select their leadership. Thank, Thank you. you, Mr. Olson. The case is submitted.